0: When I was training to be a pastor in the tradition that I come from, part of that training involves going to this thing called seminary. Not cemetery, seminary. And um, I, I, did, I did this back in the uh, mid-90s. I remember at my seminary, um, we would have chapel four days a week. And the very first chapel I went to, the president of the seminary was the preacher for the chapel. And I still remember something he said in that first message. He was talking to those of us who were thinking about taking shortcuts in our preparation for ministry. And um, he was reminding us that, that seminary was going to be difficult. We had to learn lots of things including we had to learn Greek and Hebrew they expected us to become proficient in the original languages of the Bible and I remember when he was talking about this he he knew what was going on in the room he knew there were people in the room like me for whom languages are not easy to acquire and it takes a lot of work more work than I like to do (laughs) I like little work He started talking about some of the heroes of our tradition at the time. I was a Baptist, a Southern Baptist. And he started talking about this one particular Southern Baptist pastor who had died a long time ago um, named R.G. Lee. And he said, now I know some of you guys know that Dr. Lee did not go to seminary. I'm trying to act like a Baptist preacher. Anyway, um, (laughs) he probably didn't sound anything like that. He said, Dr. Lee became a master of Greek and don't think you've got the chitlins to do it on your own like he did. <laughs> I remember being struck by the, the thought that I could ever think I had chitlins. <laughs> but what he was saying was it is possible to prepare for ministry on your own, but you should never assume you're the person that can do it. And that's what prayer is like. It is possible to learn how to pray on your own. But you should not be so arrogant to think you have the chitlins to do that. And so, Jesus in this passage that I just read is saying something similar. And not quite in the southern idiom. But look what he says in Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Matthew chapter 6. Now, Matthew 6 is the center of Jesus' most famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And right in the center of this sermon, Jesus starts talking about prayer. And I want to just draw your attention to a few phrases in this teaching That Jesus is doing on prayer. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not. And then he goes on. And then look at verse 6. But when you pray, and then he gives some instruction. And then verse 7. And when you pray, do not. And then he goes on. And then in verse 8. Do not be like You see, before Jesus ever gets around to teaching how to pray, he's doing a lot of deconstruction. He's saying up front, hey, there's a lot of habits you've got. There's a lot of ways you've been trained that you need to avoid. You see, Jesus was was talking to a group of people who lived in a culture of prayer. That particular culture was a culture of prayer. And he's telling them, your culture has taught you some wrong ways to pray. Your culture has trained you and programmed you into a way of praying that needs to change. And then in verse 9 he says, pray like this. In other words, there's a right way to pray and there's a wrong way. There's an immature way to pray and there's a mature way to pray. Now I know it sounds odd to you I think it does, to some of you, to be talking about a wrong way to pray or this whole idea that you actually have to learn how to pray. We live in a culture of prayer. Um, Lots of research has indicated. I read some surveys this week. uh, Pew Research did a survey in 2009. Six in ten adults pray daily in America. They claim they pray daily in America. Barna Research Group... um, Found that four out of five adults claim they prayed each week at least once. We very much like Jesus, and there's different cultures, but we do live in a culture that for many people is a culture of prayer. Now, you might be one of the one out of five or the four out of ten, but for many of us do. And what I'm saying this morning is that we need to learn how to pray well. We need to learn how to pray. That it's, it's a lot like learning Greek and Hebrew. It's really hard. And it requires a teacher. And it requires lots of boring, mundane, repetitious work. Just like learning a language. Now, I think this sounds odd to us because we live in a society that worships individual autonomy and freedom. Our culture has taught us to live so that we are accountable to nothing outside of ourselves. In addition to that, we live in a consumer culture. And this consumer culture has formed us into believing that the highest virtue is personal choice. So nothing is important in life other than that which we've personally chosen. Think about growing up in a culture where you don't get lots of choices, where you don't even get to choose your mate. Do you see how that would just shape you to have a totally different value system? But in our culture, we choose everything. When Janelle and I lived in England for three years and then we moved back to America, we had culture shock. You know when we we experienced it most profoundly? At Walmart. Because suddenly we had to choose between 20 types of deodorant. Now, it it is humorous, but if you've ever been socialized in another culture, this can be debilitating. I remember sitting in Walmart and being utterly incapacitated. Not sitting. I wasn't on the floor curled up. (laughs) You know what's ironic about this idea that nothing in life is as important as that which you've personally chosen? That belief... Nothing in life is as important as that which you've personally chosen. You didn't even choose that belief. It was programmed into you. So the belief itself deconstructs itself. Our culture has programmed us to into this. The, the shopping market and, the, and the, the shopping mall and the supermarket, these things have been our schools. These things have taught us at on a deep subconscious level that the most pure things in life Arise spontaneously from the individual choice. And so when we come up to something like Jesus saying, pray these words, it can feel incongruous to us. It can feel as if it's not authentic. That the real, authentic, the best praying is the praying from the heart. The prayer that arises, when you think that way, I just want you to know that's not a universal piece of reason or logic. That is a thought that was programmed into you by supermarkets and shopping malls. The the problem with the kind of praying that comes naturally is that it comes out of our hearts. And our hearts are bent. They're twisted. They're broken. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of good in our hearts. But when I say to my wife, I love you with all my heart, I mean, that could be a good thing or that could be a bad thing. Prayers from our hearts, to be honest, they're often like water from a polluted well. And just because it came out of the heart doesn't mean it's pure. Doesn't mean it's right and good. That's why Jesus spent a lot of time deconstructing their culture's approach to prayer. What would he have said if he was speaking to us in our culture? It might have been a different preliminary. It might have been a different lead up. He might have said, don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't do that before he got around. See, he was saying, you got a lot of bad ideas before I get around to giving you the prayer. So then he gives us a prayer, a gift. Pray like this. In Luke's gospel, it says, pray these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I want you to notice something about that prayer. The first part of the prayer is clearly God oriented, it's Godward. Look at the beginning of verse 9. Pray like this, and then all of a sudden, what does he start talking about? God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. Then the second half of the prayer begins in verse 11. And here the prayer turns its focus from God to us. Give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. But isn't the very order of the prayer the opposite of what comes natural to you? I mean, isn't our instinctive approach, holy cow, God, I can't pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Holy moly, God, I didn't study for the test. Which, which career do I mean? Think, you know, a very simple question is, what do you pray for? I mean, just think about your prayers. Think about how this prayer begins with God's interest before it ever gets to our interest. When we pray out of the heart, spontaneously, when we pray what comes naturally, we tend to begin with our troubles, with our frustrated desires, with our personal Christmas list. But Jesus is saying here that we need to be less self-centered in our praying and far more God-centered. Not because God needs our praise. Not because God's got a fragile ego and we need to... Butter him up before we get around, you know? Like some of us treat our friends, our parents. Lavish on the the positive because you know you're coming with a request. That's not what it is. It's not because he's got this ego that's fragile. It's because he's God. And we're not. And so that in and of itself makes it appropriate to begin with things like we sang this morning. Father, glorify your name in all the earth in my life. When you pray in the mornings, is that where you start? No, most likely not. Most likely what you start with in the morning is what you're fretting over in the night. That's the natural thing. So it's even in the very sequence of the Lord's Prayer that we're taught how to pray. And we're challenged for how we do pray. And this reorienting of what comes naturally to us in prayer, it plays out throughout the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to work our way through it phrase by phrase over the next several weeks. Let's look at the first phrase. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus prayed so much and his quality of praying was at such a level that the disciples who had grown up in a culture of prayer far more than ours, to be honest. When they encountered Jesus' praying, these are people who had been praying voraciously for their whole lives. And when they encountered Jesus in Luke's gospel, it says, Lord, will you teach us how to pray? Why were they compelled to ask Him to teach them how to pray when they had already been taught how to pray? Because up to the prayers, experiencing Jesus at prayer made them realize they didn't know what they were doing. Here's another interesting thing about that. In Luke's gospel, I think it's chapter 11, it's when the disciples ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. If you've read the gospels very much, have you ever noticed how weird it is when people ask Jesus questions? What does Jesus normally do when people ask Him questions? He doesn't answer their question. (laughs) He answers a totally different question. Have you ever noticed this? So when Jesus actually answers a question, you should think, holy cow. (laughs) (laughs) You know why Jesus doesn't normally answer people's question, but instead answers a different question? Because asking the right question is so difficult, and we normally don't. Because people normally... Ask the wrong questions. So when Jesus gets a question and he answers it straight, you've got a big, fat, hairy clue. That's a good question. That's a right question. And I want to submit to you Lord, will you teach me how to pray? Is a question Jesus will answer. And how did he answer? He had all this praying he had been doing, and he had one whack at it the centerpiece of his most famous sermon. And he gives them this prayer. This prayer was a gift to them. It was him saying to them, All right, finally, you've asked a good question. And here's a good answer. And you know what? It's an answer you can sink your teeth into today. You cannot become truly human. You cannot become truly yourself if you don't grow up in prayer. Now, when I say that prayers from the heart aren't great, I don't mean that you shouldn't start there. Absolutely. I mean, starting there is a great place to start. I'm just saying, look, there's a lot of things you start with in life that are inappropriate when you're 20. You know, we can think about a number of them. And the problem with many of us is that we're praying where we started. And Jesus is saying, let me teach you how to pray. And you know what he starts with? Two words. What are the two words? Our Father. In fact, many traditions call this prayer the Our Father. You know what he's doing there? What we see in that phrase, in those two words, is we see Jesus' deepest preoccupation. His deepest preoccupation when he walked around this earth, was talking with his father. And then, when you keep reading through the Gospels, you see this show up all the time, don't you? He's always engaged in something, pulling away from it to go to prayer. He can't find time for praying because there's so many people around him, so he gets up early to get alone. To pray. It's the deepest preoccupation of his life. It's talking with the Father. But in this move Jesus made. When he said pray like this. Our Father in heaven. We see that he's also showing us his second deepest preoccupation. To make his Father your Father. Jesus' deepest preoccupation. Was his intimate relationship. Nurtured through conversation with the Father. And when the disciples finally ask the right question, he reveals his second deepest preoccupation, which is to open up that relationship to them, to make his Father our Father. There's only one God. There's only one. And he is the God whom Jesus has revealed to us. There is no other God. All the other gods are imposters. And he is the God who made your heart. This broken thing I've been talking about. And one of the most famous theologians in the church, St. Augustine, he said, God made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in Him, the only true God. That's what Jesus is holding out in the first line of the the, Our Father, of the Lord's Prayer. He's holding out to us the thing which we really want, even though we don't even always know it. The thing that its absence creates our brokenness. He wants to make his father your father. Now, how does the one and only God become your father? Listen to the most famous verse in the Bible For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, that's interesting. The most famous prayer in the Bible contradicts the most famous verse in the Bible. The most famous verse in the Bible says God only has one child. He only has one son. For God so loved the world that he gave not one of many, but he gave his only son. But then the most famous prayer in the Bible from that son says, our father, not my father, not Jesus' father, not talk to my father, but it offers us That relation, it sounds like a contradiction. Now this tension, the tension between the most famous verse in the Bible and the most famous prayer in the Bible, that tension is the heart of the Bible. Listen to another verse of Scripture. It comes from um, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He's writing to some Christians who lived 2,000 years ago in this community called Ephesus, Ephesus listen to what he says. By nature, we are children of wrath. See, that's John 3.16. That's the most famous verse. That's by nature, we're not children of God. God only has one child. And by nature, it ain't you. It ain't me. By nature, what we are born to, what we deserve... Listen to this verse from the beginning of John's gospel. The true light, talking about Jesus, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, children of wrath. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, become children of God. It's not something you're born to. You're not born a child of God. You're born a child of wrath. To those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. You see, your birth of a woman was your birth into wrath, not into the family of God. Now, this is the Christian claim. Not all religions propose this. Christianity can't even prove this. It just claims this and confesses this. That you're not born a child of God, that by nature, you're not a child of God. And Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer, holding out the possibility that you can become the child of God. It's so important to see this distinction that God is father to Jesus. But that Jesus' deep desire is to share his sonship with you. Jesus makes a way. That's why he took on flesh and moved among us. It wasn't just to provide a good, moral, ethical way of living. But it was actually To pay the price of adoption. You think adoption in America is expensive? It doesn't compare to the price for adoption into the family of God. That price is far more than you could ever save up or earn up or offer. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten son. God, had, he gave himself. And then what was Jesus' vocation? His whole life was the price for your adoption. Another, this is, and in fact, this is what Grace read to us out of Romans chapter 8. Listen again to these words that she read. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. But wait a minute, I thought John 3, 16 said there's only one son of God. Keep going. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. See, that's where you're born. You're born in darkness. You're born a child of wrath. But listen to what it says. You receive the spirit of adoption. We're not children of God by nature. We're children of God by adoption, which you know what? Is no less a child of God if you can be adopted. It goes on to say, it is by this adoption that we can call God Abba Father. That's what grace read to us. Our ability to call God Father isn't a natural right. It's not even a right. It's something we can only receive as an adoption. And then it goes on to say, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Do you see what that means? It means an adopted child is a fellow son with Jesus. A fellow heir with Jesus. Full rights and privileges. God is our father only. Only because we share in Jesus' sonship if we've been adopted. So how do you do this? I mean, it says in this in this verse I just read out of Romans that Grace read earlier out of Romans eight. It says we must receive. How do you receive an adoption? Listen again to the passage I read earlier from John's Gospel. To all who did receive him, and then there's a comma, and it's what we call in English literature an exegetical clause which means the the phrase that comes next exegetes what went before. It explains what went before. It, It unpacks it. To all who did receive him, comma, who believed in his name. That's the explanation. He gave the right to become the children of God. That's the only way to become a child of God. It's not by being cute. It's not by being good. It's not by earning a certain amount of money. It's not by being born in a certain place. Jesus said to the Jews, it's not even by being born a Jew. In believing in Jesus' name, we are drawn into the life of the one our hearts were made for. By believing in Jesus' name, the Lord of heaven and earth, your heart will find rest. Do you believe in Jesus? It's the only way to escape your birthright of wrath. You know what's the problem with all of this? Fatherhood. I mean, for many of us, it stinks. Really? If I believe in Jesus, I get that? Fatherhood? And I know there are some in this room that that's not exactly enticing. The word father is a stumbling block. There was a very popular book written in the 90s, Fatherless America, Confronting Our Most Urgent Social Problems. Do you know that the American myth is the orphan. So many of the classic pieces of American literature are about the one who is fatherless. I mean, you study 18th century, and late, late 18th century through early 20th century literature and often the hero is the fatherless one struggling. I mean, the Lone Ranger, where did he come from? Who is he? We don't even know. He's the orphan that rides in. This, this is us. Yeah, Tom Sawyer, that's right. And, and this brokenness with fatherhood was programmed, and, and now we've got fathers who show up like ghost fathers at the end of the day to kiss their kids goodnight. For a growing number of people, father has never meant a good thing. It's only meant an aching absence, or worse, an abusive presence. And, and to be honest, those of us who've grown up with good fathers, even us, we're all too aware of their defects and problems and sins. And those of you who are fathers, and you're trying your hardest, you don't always have what your children need or what they want. And when you do have what they need or what they want, you don't, you don't, sometimes we don't know how to give it to our children without spoiling them. Too many of us, when I speak of God as Father... I know that I'm not speaking to your memory, but what I'm saying is that I'm speaking to your need, that this is your greatest need. You hunger for the Father more than you hunger for a meal. It is the gnawing hole inside of your life. But what, we're, what I'm trying to say is that when it comes to God as Father, it's inappropriate to extrapolate from your earthly experience to Him. Really, the whole metaphor is supposed to work the opposite way. That God, the Father, teaches us how to be fathers. Not our fathers... Teach us about God. Because even if you had the greatest father on earth, congratulations, you've climbed to the top of Mount Everest, but you're trying to get to the sun. It really doesn't matter. Top of Mount Everest, bottom of the ocean. When it comes to the distance to the sun, you've made no progress. When it comes to God, we must go beyond our earthly experiences and memories of fatherhood because God is more unlike any father on this earth than you could ever imagine. That's why Jesus adds the phrase, our father who is not on earth, that's not the kind of father he is. Our father who is utterly different than any other earthly father. Our father who is categorically beyond and different than all earthly fathers. Our father who is in heaven This is a different category of father. This is a different father than you've ever experienced before. That's why I added that prepositional phrase to say I'm talking about something else here. The father to whom we are invited is not an earthly father. He is above all of us. He is the one we profess in the creed, the father almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And you know at the end of the day what really makes God different than all earthly fathers? Two things. His power and His goodness. He is more powerful and exponentially more powerful than any father you can have. And He is exponentially more good than any father you can have. He always has our best intentions. He... Never fails. He always not only has the best intentions, but he has the ability to carry out those intentions. And Jesus wants you to know this. This is where the prayer starts. If you want to grow into a true human who is truly yourself, who you were made to be, this is where you have to start, and this is where you have to come back to every day, and this is where you have to grow. Our Father who is in heaven. Jesus wanted us to know this so that we could always approach God with childlike trust and with childlike confidence. And when you learn how to pray and you pray over a lifetime, you will experience that care and that power and that goodness. And you will come to see for yourself that He is the rest. You've been looking for. And that he is mighty. And that he will deny you no good thing. I was uh, talking on the phone on Friday. With one of my very good friends. One of the most brilliant people I've ever known in my life. He's a pastor in Chattanooga in a Presbyterian church. And while we were talking he was spending the day with a friend of his who'd just fallen off the wagon back into crack. And, and he and I had to have a conversation and he had to be with his friend. So occasionally throughout the, our, us talking, he would say, hold on a minute, and he'd go and talk to his friend. You know why we was spending the day with his friend? Because it was the only way he could help his friend not sell something for crack is by being there. And his friend asked him to be there. So at one point, I hear Robbie put the phone down and say to his friend, you know you have a father that loves you. And he loves you so much, he sent his own son to die for you. You don't have to do that. Why don't you drink a cup of coffee? And then he makes him a hot cup of coffee, and I'm waiting. And at the same time, I'd stopped my study on this passage. He didn't know that. And here I see it in action. And I'm saying to you, Listen, children, you must believe in Jesus. Adults, you must believe in Jesus. It is the only way to be adopted. And until that adoption comes, you're headed for wrath. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him, He gives the right to become children of God. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes?